Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray at the controls as we try to digest happenings from the weekend. Phil Mickelson stunning the golf world with his win at Kiwa Island, a tournament that may just have elevated its own status in the Majors family at least for this year. Joining me to dig into that, no doubt, fall down a bunch of rabbit holes, including Meg McLaren. Special mention for Meg this week. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. Finish third over there in the States. My regular co-host, Adrian Logue. Logue, I imagine you'd be stimulated after the weekend. That's the word I'd choose for you. Were you stimulated by the weekend's golf? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Um, it doesn't take a lot. So <laughs> the PGA- You get to an age, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it really doesn't take much. So, yeah, hours and hours of the PGA on TV just about did it. It was- um, 30 hours a day, wasn't it, at one stage then? Yeah, I yeah. I didn't watch a hell of a lot of it, but I, you know, I tuned in and it was really enjoyable. Incredible last day and incredible last two days, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Keep in mind that PGA having elevated itself, I think something happened at the weekend with the course and mm-hmm. the field and what yep. happened there, and I, we might come back to that. I think that's a really interesting thing to think about, particularly with the- Changing dates. To bring some respectability to the discussion, we brought in someone who, in the time it's taken me to read this intro, has forgotten more about the professional game than most of us could hope to learn in a lifetime if we started right now. John Huggan, no pressure after that intro. You're a Phil Mickelson fan, aren't you? You must have been pretty happy with what unfolded in South Carolina. I am a Phil Mickelson fan, um, in spite of a few, you know, dodgy moments along the way. But uh, as my friend um, Tom Callahan once said about OG Simpson, uh, he, he can forgive a man a lot if he returns his phone calls. Um, <laughs> and, and, and Phil Mickelson, uh, is, every year at the Scottish Open for a, maybe four or five years, uh, gave me a one-on-one interview, um, which actually turned into you know him wanting to hear my gossip more than me getting an interview with him. But uh, he likes to know what's going on, does Phil. Uh, but yeah, he was, he's always been good to me. That's all I can say. It, it, there have been things, obviously, along the way that I've... It'd be hard to approve of, you know, hitting moving balls on greens and laying waste to Tom Watson in press conferences and things. But uh, other than that, uh, you've got to love the way Phil plays. That's one thing for sure. Well, buckle up, Huggy, because the Saudi Super League hasn't gone away yet, so you mm-hmm. might find well, that, yeah, another. Yeah, I, f- I forgot about that. Yeah, I'm not too happy about that either. Yeah. Might be another one in the disapproval column for you coming up soon. Here's the knock on Mickelson in that way, Huggy. I take on board everything you said. Is he genuine about that, though? He's clearly made you feel that he's legitimately interested in your gossip and your family. Is it genuine, though? That's the criticism people make of him. Mm-hmm. It is. So the, the phony, you know, schmaltzy, very American, you know. But I tell you what, though, I've watched him um, more than once with this, you know, the autograph thing. Mm-hmm. But he stands in and he, and he does it. He stands there and he signs them until there's nobody left and everybody's gone and he's the only one standing there. Nobody else does that. I mean, I know Palmer used to do it, but Phil's the only guy doing that, and he's done it too often for it to be, you know, false. You know, there, there have been occasional stories of him sneaking out the back door to avoid it, but they're very, very rare. Um, and he, the number of times he does that, that you have to give him credit because, as I say, the, there are plenty of examples of guys, you know, walking away with mobile phones stuck to the rear, but no call taking place, I and mean, just to avoid talking to people or signing things. Hmm. So, you know, there are many more good things about Phil Mickelson than bad. I would argue that. Huggy's painting a picture here of a human lobe. This isn't working (laughs) for me. Is that that what's happening? Well, I've heard the the story of Mickelson having to sort of barricade himself in the scorer's hut for a little while to psych himself up before he goes out and starts signing. Um, And look, at least he's doing it. Oh, I couldn't agree more. And he's always smiling and the thumbs up thing is interesting 
Might settle. give the best press conferences in professional golf. He always comes. He's an entertainer. He absolutely is. He is a pro's pro in that way, Huggy. No question about it. But I'm in the camp that I just there's something about Mickelson I don't find convincing. I, for example, Adrian and I had this discussion before we started. I'm not sure I'd pay to go and watch him if he came and played in Australia. And that seems to be fairly I, universal I, I, I outside of him. America. I, I think he's entertaining enough and and unique enough yes, as a I'm golfer just, that I'm I would just being pay petty. to watch him. Yeah, I'm being yeah. petty and small-minded. I'm not uh, disagreeing with that in any way, shape or form. But his appeal seems to be almost uniquely American huggy, although since he won the Open, he's probably quite popular in Scotland. Um, well, he's always – I mean, as I say, he, he came and played in the Scottish Open for, <coughs> excuse me, a good number of years, um, and he wasn't getting paid to do it. I mean, there was Barclays. He was, there were sponsors. There was deals in the background, I'm sure. There wasn't nothing involved. But he wasn't actually taking an appearance fee to do it. And, you know, give him credit for that. I mean, he was, he was and he's always been a big draw. I'm surprised to hear you say that um, quite so definitively about his appeal because I've always enjoyed watching him. Forget the, you know, the other stuff. I mean, he, he, you've got to love the way he plays. I mean, he plays like Seve and, you know, nobody else does that these days or hardly anybody. So, uh, you know, you never quite know what you're going to get next with Phil. I mean, that that's that to me is fascinating. And he, and he played that way even yesterday. I mean, the man had six bogeys in, in his final round and still won. So it, it, he's, he's always interesting, put it that way. As, as Ferrity so beautifully illustrated with his take on uh, on Phil Huggy, like watching a drunk chase a balloon along the edge of a cliff. Yes. <laughs> just, it, it really does. So you're just, yeah, your head in your hand. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing? Even I know that this is the wrong play, and yet he uh, he has a go at it. Yes, I think my attitude to Phil says more about me than it does about Phil, clearly. Well, I mean, I think the difference yesterday was that he was making all the right decisions. Mm. Um, It was a course that required a bunch of different shots, and he was the guy who has all of those shots. You know, it it required you to hit some low ones, some high ones, some some ones that had to spin and stop, some ones that have to release, and uh, the chipping and everything. It was... He he had all the shots and nobody else. Well, he sees them, doesn't he? And and he sees the shots. He really put the time in. There yeah. was a real difference with the way he approached his every every single shot. His mental process before every shot really you could you could tell he was thinking to himself, okay, you know this might be my last shot at this, and uh, uh, it, it's very exhausting to do this, but. I, I need to go through this process before every shot, and it's a huge effort of mental concentration and uh, just it's a marathon effort for someone our roughly our age <laughs> approximately our age to sustain that level of concentration for four days I, I thought that was the most impressive part of the whole thing Huggy historically you'd think of Phil you'd think of ADHD it took him a long time to win his first major despite clearly having the talent to have done so much much earlier uh, the difference between him and Tiger may be less physical, much more mental. He had a period in 2004 there when he won his first Masters where I thought he was going to win the Open. It was his best finish in the Open for a very long time because he sensibly said, I'm going to stop hitting the high ball. I'm just hitting a fade off the tee, and he committed to that. And I think he finished third or fourth that year in the Open. He's almost one of those guys, Huggy, whose mind is too active. He's got too many shots on call, and that's probably cost him at times. What would be your take on that? I mean, he – well. For long enough, it was the opposite. I mean, that, his record in the Open, um, our Open, w- was pathetic. Yes, given you know, the talent level we're talking about. I mean, he, and he admitted that himself. I mean, he 
he's, he's said more than once, I mean, he certainly said it to me, that the, the most impressive thing he's ever done, it's maybe changed since yesterday, um, but the most impressive thing he'd ever done w- was win the Open. Mm. I mean, the the golf he played over the last six or seven holes at Muirfield when he won when, was extraordinary. I mean, that course was brutal. Yeah. Everybody else was chopping around and struggling to make pars, and, he, and I think he was something like three under par for the last six holes. I mean, it's incredible golf. But before that, I mean, it, it was pitiful watching him play in the Open sometimes. I mean, that the one you mentioned, the one at Troon when Todd Hamilton won, I mean, he kind of just poked his way around. I mean, yes. that, but that was no way to play. I mean, he was never going to win doing that. Or if he did win doing it playing that way, he was incredibly lucky. He had to learn how to hit the the shots that that uh, Logue just described there—the high ones, the low ones. I mean, that's a fairly new development. Given, okay, he's fifty years old, but it's only in the last <laughs> ten years that that Phil's had the array of shots that we're talking about. I mean, he he was very much the archetypal PGA Tour player. Um, before that, I mean, as you say, with the big high, you know, one shot all the time, one dimensional play for all that his short game had, was multi-dimensional. His long game was certainly was not. Yeah, indeed. Most of us probably felt Huggy 2013, the open win at Muirfield. And I suspect Phil probably thought it himself. That was probably going to be it. And what a note mm. to go out on. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk a little bit about the achievement, which everybody's talking about it. It is quite extraordinary. I'd be interested in your take on approaching 51 years of age, having the character that he does, the career that he's had, the misfortune to have been born in the Tiger Woods era in terms of wins, but the great fortune to be in the Tiger Woods era in terms of money made. Uh, yeah. What's your take at that age? What did, did you see anything about Mickelson over the weekend that was different perhaps? Well, the impressive thing is that he still wants it yeah. at that age, and given how much he's already achieved, as you say, I mean, it would be easy to sit back and think, well, five majors, 44 mm. PGA Tour wins, whatever it is. I mean, that's a, that's a hell of a career. And it would have been easy just to slip off and maybe play the occasional Champions Tour, you know, and win there a couple of times a year or whatever and and just enjoy his life. But he, he, he still wants it, clearly. Um and he, he was noticeably different. Everything was slower mm-hmm. yesterday. Was that match play slower. with Was that match play with Kepka? A little bit. Well, a little bit. I mean, you know, it, it, it did cross my mind a little bit. I mean, we're, this year seems to be the the year of the geezer. I mean, he's, Mickelson's not alone in being you know in that age group who, who've been doing well. Westwood, Stuart Sink, Harrington did well at the weekend. Richard Bland, of all people, won on <laughs> you know European Tour the week before. <laughs> Extraordinary stuff, really, but it does make me think. I mean, and it's this is not, I haven't thought this through completely, but it does make me wonder. I mean, and he dragged in Tiger's win at the Masters in 2019. I mean, when Tiger won there a couple of years ago, he shot 70 in the last round. He wasn't leading going into the last round, and he shot 70, mm-hmm. which is good, but it's not fantastic. And he won mm-hmm. basically because everybody else just fell away. And you could argue that Phil did kind of the same yesterday. I mean, he shot 73 in the last round. Not fantastic by any means. He had six, And as I say, he dropped six shots mm. along the way. And everybody else just kind of fizzled out. I mean, it does make me think that, you know, this challenge that they get week to week on the PGA Tour, which is a difficult challenge. I mean, and it, but the thing is, it's a, kind of the same it's challenge the same every challenge, week. Yeah. And you take these guys out of that comfort zone, if you like, which generally speaking, we're talking about the majors, you know, especially our Open and, and the conditions yesterday and that golf course were hardly typical of the PGA Tour. You do wonder if they're, if they're 
the, the present generation, the best players, are, are that adaptable. Mm-hmm. I mean, Phil, you know, he's old enough to remember what it was like before, you know, this, this generation of, you know, balls and clubs and all the rest of it. And you do start to think, well, maybe there's something to this. Maybe these guys aren't that good. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a thing oh, to think about. Well, there you go. We'll get emails now for <laughs> sure. I, I do think that difference was on display yesterday where Kepka was just hitting Kepka shots. And and he had a little bit of a left miss going off the tee, and he really got punished for that. But you, he was standing up to it and just hitting his shots. And usually, when Kepka does that, he gets great results. But uh, he was getting mixed results yesterday. Whereas Phil was having to grind it out and having like he, it, Phil, it seemed knew what was at stake with each shot and was making the decisions which put the odds just slightly in his favour which is a form of strategy in a way. And I, again, I was just really impressed with his concentration levels. My, my dad once said to me after I'd had a good round, he said, ah, you, you were in the zone. And and then he sort of looked away wistfully and said, ah, I haven't been in the zone for 20 years. <laughs> and and that's true. Like, And now I'm probably around dad's age when he said that to me. And it is really hard to get into the zone after a certain age. You just it doesn't come naturally. You've got to actually force it, and I, I kind of feel like that's what Phil did over four days. He Medi- he's been meditating and all the sorts meditation, of stuff, and, yeah. and it's just extending that that mental uh, sustenance that you've got to apply yourself over four days. And he kind of did that without it happening, just happening. For Kepka, he's still at an age where it just happens, and yeah, well, Phil Kep- has to make Kepka's it happen. Maybe a good example of what I was talking about. I mean, this is maybe a bit harsh, given he's. The guys won four majors in, in no time at all. But um, it, it does strike me that, that there isn't a plan B for Brooks Kepka. If plan A isn't working, that's it. He doesn't win. Yeah. I mean, there's been a string of failures now in the last round. I mean, he's got this reputation as this, you know, if I'm up there, I'm going to win sort of thing. But that, that hasn't been happening over the last couple of years. I mean, there's been some notable failures for him in the last round, you know, yesterday being one of them. So he he's as I say it's maybe a bit harsh, but uh, he he seems to me to typify the modern guy. I mean I said before about him, you got to love the way he plays when he's playing great. I mean it's it's very impressive, but I I don't want everybody to play that way. And it, it seems to no. me that golf at the elite level was heading in that direction. Certainly on the tour and tour golf, everybody just plays the same way. But that's you the know, way to be successful, level. isn't it, Huggy? You make 90% yeah. of your money in 10% mm-hmm. of your tournaments, so play the same way, and statistically, every X number of weeks, you're going to play great. If you're as good yeah. as Brooks Kepka and it's a major, you're going to play great X number of times over a five-year period, win X number of majors, and loads and loads of money. That's that's a formula that you could probably mathematically prove. So in terms of the game more broadly, are they not just answering the questions they're being asked, Logue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and look, this course asked some different questions and most of the field seemingly weren't prepared for those questions. Uh, I think Kepka is just an exceptional ball striker and a really, really good golfer, and that was good enough to get, you know, to achieve what he achieved in, in the last week. But Phil was the one, and Phil and, and Harrington and, and Oosthuizen. Oosthuizen, Lowry, Harrington, Harry Lowry's Hinks, a great example. Casey, Th- these Justin are, Rose. Yeah, these are experienced players who have been asked a variety of questions over their careers and Phil's kind of at the, at the pointy end of that group. And, uh, you know, they, they had to come up with a bunch of different shots. It's interesting because this golf course is a weird American facsimile of mm. Scottish seaside golf. Mm. 
and well, Irish sort of seaside golf, really. Well, it's not, it's, a, it's American. Yeah. It's a uniquely American seaside golf course, and uh, but you know, nonetheless, it, it doesn't. It, it was asking similar questions to what Lynx Golf asks, without with the exception of the ball running on the ground into the green yeah. complexes. Other than that, though, it, I mean, it, it had this unique challenge where you actually had to hit these small targets on the full, and and it was firm. Uh, then it would release, yeah. It, it was releasing, and then you had these difficult chips. So that was a whole sort of unique test to that. And I guess it's a form of strategy on its own, but you could see there's certain shots during that back nine in particular where you've actually just got to execute it and there's a lot of factors in play, and it might demand a different shot to the sort of shot where you've just got to hit it up in the air and land it on a spot. You might have to shape it in the air. You might have to hold it into the wind. You might have to hit it low but still make it stop. You might have to hit it high but make it stop. You know, there, there was all sorts of different uh, questions being asked there, and Phil knew the places where he was going to be asked the toughest questions, the 13th, for example, the 14th, um, and you know he sort of failed every day on the 13th, but- you could still see the mental process that he was going through, and there were bogeys. You're going to make bogeys at a place like that, but he well, that, he sort of fought his way through it and minimised the the damage and did just enough to win. Might be one of the things that makes it an awkward week. A guy like Phil understands that you're going to make some bogeys, so they're not so horrendous. There's a whole generation of players for whom the notion of a bogey is almost just unacceptable, and to make four of them in a round is enough to sort of end your world. We saw John Rahm had a couple of dummy spits both early in the week in the practice rounds, talking about the irons he had to hit over the last four holes. At one point during the week, did he not say he'd rather not be there? He finished tied eighth, so well done, John yeah. Rahm. Chat- contrast it to like Bryson, who failed, I, I think, by his standards, failed in this tournament, um, just couldn't work it out, felt it was unfair. And and that, to me, it, it said everything about it. Like, Bry- Bryson's thinking, oh, it's unfair. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's golf. Yeah, welcome, welcome and to it, the game. And board. it contrasts the the sort of test that winged foot provided, um, where, you know, it's just mm. built the hell out of the ball. A very fair out of rough. test. Yeah. Smash it into the rough, hack yeah. it out of the rough. Whoever does that the best is going to have a yeah. chance. Putt really well. To yeah. win. Quick shout out to Greg Chalmers, who mentioned the name. It felt like out of nowhere, Abraham Answer, when we spoke to him last week. Best round of the week, Sunday, 65, and finished tied eighth. Oh, right. <laughs> well done. And nobody Back, has mentioned it. Backdoor uh, well top done. 10. Well done, Abraham. In fact, a bunch of names that have Harrington got a bit of attention for his finish, as did Lowry. But Harry Higgs, Paul Casey, Justin Rose, tied eighth. Colin Morikawa finished tied eighth alongside John Rahm. Will Zalatoris, Scottish Scheffler, Tony Finau, Ricky Fowler, Kevin Streelman, all tied eighth. So Phil's sucked all of the publicity away from some pretty interesting stories in that lot there, hasn't he, Huggy? We've, we've, this, this is one of those events where we are really absolutely 100% focused on the guy who won and almost everything else has, has disappeared in the storyline. Yeah, the, the one that, that well struck me, I mean, I'm certainly biased in this, obviously, geographically, but <clears throat> I thought I might get a call to, to write about Harrington and Lowry playing together on the last day and, you know, they're big pals, the the, if you haven't heard already about their chipping contests mm. that they have early in the week at tournaments, they're legendary and, and well worth a watch. I mean, incredibly entertaining the pair of them, uh, and it's fascinating to see what they what they come up with. But the, that was a, I thought that was a good storyline, especially Harrington uh, and Lowry is, is not too far behind him in that respect because he hasn't done much lately. He's been play, there's been signs of you know a bit better form. But this is, you know, he's desperate to get in the Ryder Cup team because he's big pals, the captain. 
And I think he wants to, obviously, clearly wants to get in there without the need of a pick because it puts Harrington in a very awkward position if he has to pick Lowry. Um, but Lowry's one of the, probably one of those guys that if he's playing well in the last in the month up to the end of the qualifying, yeah. he, he'd be a legitimate pick. Oh, he, he needs to be doing that. And this was the first sign of that, I think. Yeah, he played well enough to be even considered. It's a crazy thing to say, but he's a bit of an old school golfer, isn't he, Larry? You get that feeling. Yeah, very much so. That's why I always loved. I've been, yeah. long before he was prominent. I loved watching, yeah. you know, Shane Lowry play golf because of that. He's a, he's an artist. He's not a scientist. <laughs> yeah, very. Uh, and he, very play, much he a, plays his best at the big occasions as well. Yeah, and he, on the he, tough courses. That's exactly right. He's uh, mm. he seems to be sort of that's what he wants and where he wants to be. I'm surprised he didn't get a call about it or somebody didn't write the Larry Harrington story because apart from anything else, Huggy, being in, from a print background, there was a fabulous photo of the two of them walking off either the 17th or the 18th tee, giving yeah. the, the knuckle bump. It was the perfect picture to accompany the story and nobody's written the story, as yeah. you said, which is a real, well, real shame. He, the people I work for ignored it completely, yeah. which is, struck me as a bit odd. Yeah. Well, in fairness, probably in any other year, any other if Brooks Kepka had won, you probably would have seen the Larry Harrington story, but in America in particular, the Mickelson story, a bit like the AFL in winter here in Australia, in Melbourne, just overtakes it. It swamps everything. Doesn't matter how good stories are in other sports, they don't exist because the AFL dominates everything. And that's a bit. Yeah. Have, have you filed your Golf Australia magazine article for this week? Or that, was you- yes, that was yesterday. Well, you oh, didn't okay. read it. Sorry, no, I did actually. <laughs> did you? What was it about then? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, the radio. The radio thing. Was it wasn't yeah. one of my better. Yeah. I didn't get to see no, it was good. The, any of the. Uh- didn't they accept your. Phil Mickelson hatchet job. I've written, I just did my Golf Australia uh, magazine um, column this morning for Brendan James, and uh, it's on Mickelson. You'd be pleased to know. Oh, that's okay. As it kind of should be. This feels like one huggy to finish up on Mickelson, and then we'll talk about some other things. This feels like one that we'll still be digesting for some time, and the takes on this in five years' time it will be different and fuller and more rounded. It's hard to digest this in 24 hours, isn't it, what Mickelson's actually achieved? Because there's so much wrapped up in it. He's been such a prominent player for such a long time. There's a recency bias. You know, your own feelings about him as a player, as a person, they all come into it. In five years' time, this achievement will take probably its rightful place, which everybody's trying to achieve right now. Where Does, does this make Mickelson one of the greats? Where does this rank as, you know, in, in terms of the great majors to watch? It's too early for all that, isn't it, Huggy? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's historic. I mean, you know, given the fact that he's now the oldest ever to win one of these things, but the, and it does actually finally put an end, I think, to the minor league debate of who was the second best player in the Tiger era. Yeah. Was it was it Phil or was it Ernie? I think this kind of tips the scale in favour of Phil. Uh, six majors to Ernie's four. Um, I mean, it's hard to get apples and oranges to an extent because Ernie played all over the place and Phil basically stuck to America. But, uh, you know, I think this probably gives Phil the edge over, over Ernie in that in that uh, debate. Yeah, anybody looking at the record in 50 years' time will certainly say it's quite clear. <laughs> well, mm. it's, it's about records, isn't it, not about personalities. The, the problem with recency bias is that the personality part of it comes into it. We look at the records from 100 years ago, and it's clear who were the best players, but they might have been awful people, Huggy. We don't know that. Well, there is that, yeah. There's a, there's a, f- a few racists out there that's uh, lurking in the bushes, shall we say. Yeah, indeed there is. Let's switch gears a bit, Huggy. I, I've just got yes. one final thought on the golf course, just – just want to mention some food for thought for Australian listeners, particularly in like New South Wales, where you've got beachside courses with warm season grasses like a Kaikuyu or something like that. Isn't th- this place is a great sort of model for how to do that? 
warm season grasses like a kaikuyu or this paspalum, which is name some names, probably be utter junk in Australia, but. The oh, uh, like, Magenta like, Shores is Paspalum, I think. Is it? I think so. Well, no, certainly no, the no, roughs. They've got Santa Ana Cooch. Their, their roughs are certainly Paspalum, so it will grow. Yeah. Anyway, the, uh, you've got a Kaikuyu beachside course like Belmont, mm-hmm. Long Reef, uh, Wollongong. Wollongong, yeah. Um, which are some on sort of somewhat swampy land as well, which is exactly what this golf course mm-hmm. was. Here's how you do it. That, like, you're not going to get a good ground game off of Kaikuyu. But no. you can have something like that. You can have something like Kiowa Island. So imagine if you had Peak Dive still around and came in and redid Long Reef. What an amazing place that would yeah. be. Or, or Belmont. Yeah. Yeah. New South Wales is the- Something to think about. New South Wales is the land of opportunity in some ways, isn't it, yeah. for golf courses? We've got a lot of golf courses sited on great places where you just can't help but feel something yeah. better could be there than was it, which is not to- yeah. not to. You can't seed fine fescues in those areas. No. But you, no, can, no, no, no. you can put- Like the Kaikuyu grows like a weed, so- Work with it. See, work with it. Yeah, work with it. The event itself, Huggy, has this elevated the PGA? For a long time, we've talked about the PGA being the you know the the fourth most important of the four majors by some margin. It's a point that Mike Clayton's made many times. Lots of ideas for how you might go about fixing it and making the PGA putting it back to the sort of status that it should have. This week, certainly, the PGA feels to me like partly to do with the shift in date, perhaps, certainly the venue this time around being something different, and the winner, has it elevated the status of the PGA in terms of the other three majors, Huggy? What do you think? Um, a little bit, I think, yeah. Um, I think it's still fourth, um, but maybe the gap's not quite as wide. I mean, the, the problem with the PGA, and this is not a unique point of view, this has been said by many people, but it, it needs a personality. Yes. Um, the, the other three have got very distinct personalities, you know what you're going to get pretty much um, when you go to either, all three of them. But the PGA, you know, they, they suffered for a long time. They went to some really awful golf courses. My goodness. There was some, the first major I ever went to in America was the 1987 uh, PGA at uh, PGA National, which has been redone a bit, obviously, since then. But, oh, my goodness, it was in August. And I remember, you know, Ian Woosnam was the best player in the world in 1987 by a street. And he walked out, I think he shot 87 or something or 85 in the first round, and he came off, and I've never seen anybody that wet who had just jumped out of a, come out of a swimming pool. I mean, it was just a ridiculous place to go in August, you know, Florida in August. I mean, I'd never, as I say, I hadn't been to America very often at that point, and I'd never seen anything like it. I spent most of my time, to be perfectly honest, not watching the golf. There was a, a scoreboard in the lake to the right-hand side of the 18th green, and there was this beautiful girl in a bikini changing the numbers. And I sat in the stand and just watched her for a couple of hours. It was far more entertaining than the, the golf. I mean, the course was in terrible condition. I mean, and it, it had to be the, one of the worst majors ever. And that, that was my introduction to, to major championship golf in America. Oh, God, horrible. Certainly PGA's elevated itself in status since then, I suppose, hasn't it, Logan? Although the Masters, yeah. for a very long time, had a Masters beauty pageant the week of the Masters in mm. Augusta, Georgia, where they'd have open-top yeah. cars with girl, scantily clad girls and they'd become Miss Masters. So not unheard of. It's moved on a bit since then, hasn't it, Logan? Where's the PGA sit in the rotor? What do they need to do? Because if you have four majors, one has to be the fourth most important. But it doesn't have to be universally agreed. And the problem for the PGA is it seems to be universally agreed. If you polled the players, they would say the same thing. Of the four majors, you know, which is the one you you want to win least of the four, excepting that you want to win all of them, 
everybody would say the PGA. How do they change it? Well, just, just I think this week demonstrated it is to have it a good venue. Um, and But unfortunately, I think they've announced the venues oh, for the next cr- 10 years. It's crazy. That, yeah. that decision continues to resonate that it was just some sort of obstinate move that they did to sort of so why, like, why pre-announce 10 years in advance? Oh, there'll, be a, there'll be a money reason in there somewhere. I, I, I found that extremely annoying and provocative in a weird way. And it just, look, here's the demonstration that they need is just put it on great venues and make it a great test of golf um, and you'll get uh, a great tournament out of it. That's it's, yeah. it's I, mean, I, I think they're extremely lucky to be a major. I mean, if we were starting over tomorrow, this thing would not be a major championship. The an organisation of you know that represents the needs and wants of sweater salesmen. Really, oh, I mean, so they, they would. They, they, there's no way it would be a major. I mean, I've said this you know many times, and maybe even on, on a podcast like this. But if you were starting over tomorrow, I think the the four majors would be the the out the Open here, the US Open. I hate to say this, but the Players' Championship would be the major. It's the biggest event on the biggest tour. It would be a major. And the fourth one, I think, should be the World Match Play Championship that actually tours around and is played in a different country every year. That, to me, would... Mm-hmm. The amount of golf that's played in the world, you know, everywhere in the world every year, far more of it is match play. The vast majority of it is match play, and that should be represented at the highest level. So the World Match Play Championship, for me, would go all over the place, You'd have one in, uh, you'd have two in America, which is probably about right, and one in Europe, and you know the other one, one everywhere. I mean, that to me makes far more sense than the situation we've got right now with three in the one country. It's nonsense. Of course it does, Huggy, but that's that lazily ignores history, does? Mm. I mean, I'd love to. Well, agree well, with you. the PGA was does the it match really? Play. I mean, what happened to the Western Open and what happened to the British match play? Canadian Open, you know, yeah. That was the biggest. Yeah, I mean, all those things. I mean, the Western Open was definitely a major back in the day, and and. For whatever reason, I mean, I think probably the media, <clears throat> the marketing department in Augusta, Georgia, probably decided that the, that was not going to happen anymore. I mean, it's uh, it, when you look back at the reasons why things are majors, I mean, you know, the Masters you can make has the history no case. argument. The PGA, at least, yeah. has a case to make, Huggy. The Masters has no case, is the truth of it. It no, has been. And I know I've said this before to you, but I interviewed Peter Thompson years ago, and he called the the Masters, the biggest con job in yes. sports, mm-hmm. which we, is, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah, we'll get emails about yeah. that. but uh, <laughs> see, see, Huggy, as well, this is why the Australian Open should never be co-sanctioned because it, yes. ha- it has its own unique what do you mean, identity. Yes. You've been telling Logie's a fool for taking that stance for the last five years. No, no. <laughs> it, it, well, I think that I think the Australian Open, in an ideal world, would be one of the, would be a candidate. Yep. You know that's the, that's the, to the extent I agree with the co-sanction, but in the world that we live in now, of course it should be on the European tour. You know, it'd lose all its identity. It might just yeah. even hey hey, it may become part of the Saudi golf league scheme. <laughs> For, the forty-eight <laughs> that player is exactly field. what could happen. Yeah, exactly, but you know, it, look, it's better off suffering in anonymity than be have it dictated by some tour. I know we've done it before, but I want you to lay out why you think the Australian Open should stand alone, because I find the reasons compelling. I find it difficult to make a business case that it can work. I need to remind I've, myself of some of my arguments. But, but I find it, your reasons compelling, I do. Because any any product in any area of life, if you make something that is unique and stick to that, then eventually there's value in that. And you ask, why did the Masters become Absolutely. a major? It's because they did the opposite of what everybody else is, and they ended up with something that's unique. And like everything from the $1 sandwiches, sandwiches to, to, to four no- Four every hour. And-, and Yeah, no 
title sponsor, th- those are all decisions which you wouldn't be able to get past any board. But because they're calling their own shots, they control their own destiny and they can create a product. And it was that no guarantee to succeed, by the way. You know, people think the Masters was a success right from the beginning. That's not true. Augusta National really oh. struggled early on. There was a real chance it could have disappeared as a club and a tournament yeah. for a very long time. That's right. You take a risk. And, and the Australian Open sort of has that same risk in play all the time. It's always, you know, it's always at risk. It, it can never attract enough money and it probably never will at this point. But. It's and and th- therefore co-sanctioning becomes a sort of discussion because oh we need to attract money, but look again it's a sort of thing where it, nobody would agree with you that oh no let's make let's not make money the priority nobody would agree with that but perhaps that's the only way to actually create something unique in in golf in the modern world so is, the, the is to key, have a trophy that people want. So not, the key to the success of that is can you goad the best players into the world into coming here and playing without being yeah, paid? you've got to have a trophy that people See, want. And the only way to do that is to create something unique. It probably doesn't touch enough of a nerve, but Huggy, is there something in being able to say to Tiger Woods constantly, yeah, but you haven't won the Australian Open. You know, Jack's got seven of them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, Jeff Ogilvie and I have talked about this you know, many times, and his view is that you take a long-term view on this. All you do is you try and make the tournament of the championship as good as it can be. And then the next year, you try and make it a little bit better than that. And the next year, you do the same. And and after 10 or 15 years, you've suddenly got this incredible product if you've done it right. And it becomes more and more attractive. The, the, the biggest problem is, that is, I'm sorry to say this, but it's where you guys are. I mean, the location is a big issue. I mean, it just is. I mean, getting people to go that far You'd have to build a, you know, a, at least a three-week window of opportunity for these guys, where you'd have a big event, maybe the week before or, or the two weeks before, and you have the climax of the three weeks the Australian Open, something like that. I'm, I'm thinking out loud at the moment, but it, it has to be more than one week. That that there has to be something more than just the Australian Open to get people to go that far. It's just a fact of life. I, I, I wonder whether we can turn that around into an advantage. People said the same thing about Bandon Dunes and Barnboogle Dunes too. How the hell are you going to get people to come? Mm. Well, in fact, the journey becomes a part of the pilgrimage. And I know we're talking about a different product with professional golf, but perhaps with creative thinking you can change that. Is the problem really for a tournament like the Australian Open, in fact, let's just cut the crap, is the problem for the Australian Open really, Logue, that like most companies these days, it lurches from quarter to quarter. There's a quarter to quarter way of thinking, you know, that – Let's just get a profit this yep, quarter. Yep. Get a profit this quarter. Get a profit this quarter. Rather a than long-term a five-year, ten-year plan. Year plan right. type That's thing. hard yep. to sell to a public yep. that sees the best players in the world week in and week out every Friday to Monday morning on their television, and they're understandable but somewhat naively. Why can't we get them here to play the Australian Open? It's something. There's something wrong with the way it's being organised. Yeah, it's hard to sell anything but that to a board, isn't it? And, you know, in the end, the people who organise the Australian Open answer to a board um, or, you know, they answer to some major sponsors and, and event organisers who, who put it on. And, you know, that's where all the decision-making occurs is, is not necessarily even within Golf Australia. It's, you know, event organisers and um, the, the rights holders. So, you know, that and they're all going to be answering to a board and a board isn't necessarily going to hear, okay, we want to make this a unique experience for the players and that's going to take five years to sink in as word gets around amongst the players that they get treated better than any tournament in the world when they come here. You won't get paid appearance money, but you'll you'll have this unique experience playing in the Australian Open um, or, you know, that 
it, we, the, you play on fantastic golf courses every year um, and you might have to forgo state sponsorship or something, heaven forbid. Like there's all there's some horrible decisions you'd have to make along the way to to have it emerge in five to ten years' time as a great product and you might risk the whole shooting match. But Aren't we risking – let's be completely honest about the Australian Open. Do we not risk the whole shooting match anyway? The model as it stands yep. at the moment, we continue it's to just run – just trying to create another tournament. We're creating faster and faster on a treadmill that we're never going to realistically be able to keep up with and we rely – and we cannot do this for much longer – we rely on government money to put the tournament on. Yep. And that's just not – realistic i don't think why, in the long why term why is that like I, I sort of think to myself why not just run an australian open even if it's like it's the australian open like it, why does it have to be a big production like if, if there isn't the money to do it like a, in a covid year or something it's a, it's a risk you can still just get just just declare some event the australian open and, and just still run it like, why do you actually have to cancel a tournament? I love how you why think differently, just, but every now and then you go to an area where even I can't follow why, you. Why can't you just like downsize a tournament rather than cancel it? Look, I think some Huggy, this is the, probably the ultimate question, and I doubt that this is what's going to happen, but does the pandemic, has the pandemic actually given us an opportunity here for professional golf in Australia that we're probably going to waste? We are trying to be the same as every other tour without the resources to compete with every other tour, and that just seems like madness. Well, you've got an opportunity in the sense that, you know, to follow on from what you've just said, this year, if you have an Australian Open this year, and I think they've got a date, have they, the, for the event? No, uh, the PGA has a date. The Australian Open hasn't announced the date yet, but it would be very unlikely the PGA would go ahead without the Australian Open going ahead. That would right. that would be highly unlikely. And the two bodies are working more closely together now. So I think that's it will really be a matter, I think, of whether the Australian Open is going to go the week before or the week after the PGA. That will be really what's right. discussed. Well, you're going to have a, you know, with the best will in the world, the way the world is at the moment, mm-hmm. it's not going to be – an Australian Open on the scale that we've seen even in the last 10 years that when I've been going to the event, you're not going to get the field this year. Uh, you might you might not even get many of the top Australians coming back. Who knows? Um, I hope you do. But the, 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 the field's going to be weaker. You're not going to get the international aspect of it. Uh, so this is a chance to, to, to start the process that we've just been talking about, that just – Make it, you know, don't worry about the size of the event. Just, just make it as good yes, as it can be absolutely. in the circumstances that you're, you're that prevail, and go from there. You know, take that long term view. Take, you know, listen to Jeff Ogilvy. It's always worth listening to when, when it comes to golf. Lo- logo. And, and 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 just do it that way. Just go for it. You know. Sitting to my left here, Huggy, is the man known as the squat Jeff Ogilvy, or Logilvy, as Felicity Johnson. <laughs> well, you have to explain that one to me. Some, some time ago. Isn't the issue, Log, that we make the mistake, always in golf, of treating the business as though it's the game? What we're really talking about here is make mm. the golf the most important thing and let the business follow. We always have the cart before the whole horse in golf. How do we get the biggest name players? How do we get without a Rory or a Jordan to headline the field? Nobody's going to be interested. That might not, maybe less people would be interested, but I think hardcore golf fans, and that is the bulk of golf fans, not a lot of people tune into the Australian Open for a week and then don't watch any other golf for the rest of the time. Uh, we don't cater to the fan. We try and cater only to the player and the television product. Yeah. And look, if, if you want to take a business view, of that, then the market is saturated with one type of product at the moment. And 
there is perhaps uh, a, an opening there for the purists. Um, and I, look, I, I'm reminded- Let's make it a persimmon and blades tournament. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Go the whole hog, Ballata. I think that'd be a novelty, but it'd- Scott Hayes would be a chance. Yeah. <laughs> You'd back him. Oh yeah, you know, sure. Yeah. and Ballata and Blades. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean that'd be a novelty, but you know, an event for the purists. But it's just it's not going to be immediately popular. The popularity will build. Look, I mean, I think this is probably an opportunity to sort of segue to the Saudi thing, because they're going to come in with. Like, sure, their formats that they're proposing are a little bit different, but they're also just going to come in with this commercial product. It's a business product. The golf's about the money. Yeah, that's right. That's what golf is in the States. The FedEx Cup tells you that. It's about the money. Yeah. It's about the money. We know it's about the points, but the points can be converted for money, apparently. I didn't realise that until just recently. The FedEx Cup points can be converted for money. So, actually, golf still is about money in the States, even though they keep trying to tell us that it's not. It's always about money. Of course, it's always. always. So you you were going somewhere with the Saudi thing. We talked about this before we started, and I thought you had some interesting thoughts on it. Yeah, well, I I think there's there's something. I I mean, I've tried to evolve my thinking on this and and uh, not be completely sort of absolutist in my thinking about it. And there's this distasteful thing that they're doing with the sports washing of their the so-called sports washing of their cultural reputation and their human rights reputation uh you know looking to use sports as a way of legitimizing their their regime um and on the one hand that that's abhorrent but on the other hand it's it's a closed country looking to participate in the global community and if if that's if that's happening i think the global community needs to be open to it um and it's, it's a look. It's a dangerous thing to say, but I'm just going to let you keep also, yourself into I this also hole. think, <laughs> also think the way this consortium is going about doing it is completely wrong. Yeah, that, that's separate from the Saudi yeah. issue more broadly, which is what you're talking about. But where where a closed country like this doesn't, or where it remains closed, we know from history that that's terrible for the people in that country. No possible good outcome. From that's that. right. Yeah. Um, now, just throwing money at golf tournaments isn't the solution. No. No. Again, I think building great product is like I, I think uh, I used a horrible <laughs> term there, but you building a great thing that people want to actually participate in, like you were saying with the Australian Open, like what is it that would make people want to come to Australia every year to play in this tournament? Building something great like that that people want to participate in would be a fantastic way to use sports as a bridge to open up this closed country to the global community. But the global community should be thinking about, you know, okay, there, there's an olive branch of a weird commercial sort being extended here. Um, let's see if we can use that as an opportunity to help, ultimately help, make a difference. Yeah, ulti- yeah. Well, here, here's the thing, though. If, um, I'm hearing whispers um, louder and louder. I'd be very surprised if the Saudi tournament is part of the European Tour next year. Well, you would, have, think that, you would assume uh, all this, yeah, that, that would all this seem business has put an end to it, yeah. Where does that lead and, you know, the I've LA heard team. the argument, you know, which you've kind of come close to, that the only way to get them to change is to embrace them and, and bring them into the Well, engage, I like, think, rather than embrace. Yeah, yeah. I would stop well, you know, embracing. <laughs> yes. That was maybe the wrong word. But anyway, the, uh, about my, the other side of that coin, and I kind of sympathise more with this view that, 
if you do what the, you know bring them in and and they don't feel the need to to change once once they're in they're not going to change yeah they'll, they'll go so far but then they'll stop because the, they've achieved what they want to achieve and if you let them do that the the whole thing falls apart the whole argument falls apart but the you know, I, I, as I've said before, I mean, you know, I've been to places that the human right wing China and places that, that are, you know, you would look at and just shake your head. But I don't know where my line is, but it's some way short of going to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't even think of going there based on what they get up to. Is that selfish? Are we selfish when we? I don't mean that as a personal accusation. Well, there's something a bit selfish about that. You know, yeah, it's self-righteous. Yeah. That's right. I mean, yeah. of course, the flip side of this discussion is, you know, and Rory encapsulated it beautifully, and we all went here, here, cheers. I don't like where the money's coming from. Mm. Do we ever take the time to study where the money's come from, coming from for golf on the PGA Tour or here in Australia or in the UK? Because no, those entities are not squeaky clean. Yeah. What banks? Nike and, and- <laughs> seriously, yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the amnesty—I I was looking at this the other day. The Amnesty International page on human rights in Australia is just about as long as the Saudi Arabian one. We have not covered ourselves in glory in the no. last couple of decades in this area. Nobody—we're not explicitly that. killing people, but yeah, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're not necessarily doing a lot to stop it either. So, look, it's a complex and vexed question. I. I would have some empathy for somebody like Mickelson, who's become the poster child for the Saudi Golf League, right or wrong, mm. uh, in terms of yeah. that. He may not be talking and, to and maybe, the, maybe the Maybe the worst thing that ever happened for them was him winning yesterday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah he's possibly. not so desperate now. Yeah, that's right, not desperate for the cash. What's Seth Waugh going to do about it if he goes there? Seth well, Waugh's going to back back out of his comments about not allowing people to, to play the PGA? Maybe you can still be mm. a captain yeah. of the Ryder Cup, even if you're playing in it. Mm. Um, oh. more, more to the point, what I was going to say was, the disappointing thing in terms of what's happening with golf is it feels unlikely that any of the players who might be considering any of those offers that are being made are giving any sort of thought to the things that we're discussing here about whether they can be the agents of some form of change or at least involved in that way. It feels like for the most part they're simply thinking about, well, how much money's on the table? Yes, thank you, I'll take that. Uh, and the complex issues of you know humanity and everything else, be damned. And that's... I mean, Tiger's refused to play in Saudi Arabia before. Roger Federer has refused to play in Saudi Arabia, despite being offered large sums of money to go there and do it. Uh, that's not a question that we're going to be able to answer. <laughs> Anybody can really answer that. There's a lot of things to think about there. Huggy, it just struck me if you were saying that the European Tour may not be playing in Saudi next year. They, of course, have had that championship twice now, I think. Um, what does that mean for the LET, who the European Tour have stronger ties with? And the LET is yeah. very much ensconced with the Saudi Arabian government yeah i mean that that's it boggles the brain really doesn't it to to think that women would would consider going there but it just shows you the the power of the money and and the you know the sad, well, there's no alternative for the la to you know, is there? no i know i, I get and, all that but that it's i can't believe any of them felt i mean meg mclaren who you talked about earlier she was the only one i think that stepped up and said no i'm not going but actually, um, I think but, Meg could give a rational case for why she might go as well, um, you know, because... Yeah, yeah, it, and, it, you know, at the end of the day, I would understand why she went, but it, um, it's a difficult one because, it, you know, their purses and, you know, tour in such a low ebb the last few years that I get the fact that they're, they're open to, you know, offers from just about anywhere. But Saudi Arabia, my goodness! I mean, you just if you if you've done any reading at all about what goes on there, I mean, 
you just you couldn't even consider it. But the you know, as I say, money money's a very got a very loud voice when it comes to professional sport. And it doesn't exist in a vacuum is the other thing either. And I, I agree with you. Like I, there's a case, and you can't judge any individual. Uh, Felicity Johnson was quite open when I spoke to her last year. Well, I was really the year before down at um, down at 13th Beach. She was going. She's a professional golfer. There's a golf tournament mm. on that's offering a purse. That's her job. She's yep. going. Yep. And, and that's I've got no problem with that. And the Saudi Arabians, look, if they want to do something, if they want to make something great, there's something that they could actually do rather than this lazy thing of just targeting 40-something like semi-retired male professional golfers. That That's yeah. sort of the very first idea that you would come up with in the very first meeting spitballing ideas about this thing. You'd say, oh, let's just what target- What the Australian Open does every year, isn't it? Yeah. Who's let, a big name player we can get? Let's target some 40-something-year-old men- uh, who whose careers are fading but still have high profile, like that's they're going to accept big paycheck. Let's just do that. That's just stupidly easy and, and it's not lazy. a great product, though, is it? I mean, how long would people and it's, watch? Yeah, that? it's not necessarily it's not sustainable. Long. It's, it's not, completely flawed. I think it's not know. very sustainable. But if they wanted to build a product that's built to last, then focus on the women's game. It's the sleeping giant of world golf, and the reality nobody yeah. nobody's hooked into it, and they except for the well, South Koreans. That's in fact. In fact, we're all saying we could completely understand why the women might go there and play. I have no sympathy for Phil Mickelson if he goes and joins that league or any other player, Justin Rose no. or Lee Westwood or any of them. No sympathy at all. No. But I have complete empathy for Carly Booth and Meg McLaren and Felicity Johnson going there to play. And in a funny way, Logan, is there not a possibility that the Saudis might actually achieve something that they're not necessarily interested in? If you stage regular women's golf tournaments, yep. it's it gets harder and harder and harder to have some of the beliefs and systems in place around women in their own country. If the if if you've got it comes under scrutiny, doesn't it? It kind of does. It brings attention to the one thing you might not want to bring attention. So the women have a chance to actually perhaps affect change in a way that blokes don't necessarily. If you're talking about sport, God, this is a complex issue. But does that? Yeah, it comes under scrutiny. And look, some of the laws have changed around uh, in the in the past year or so. Um, I, I don't want to quote specific things because I'll probably get it wrong, but they've they've moved, and and it's partly because the, they had the to. women are driving cars. Oh well, I, yes, and I think that that's not necessarily as straightforward as it might have been solved. They're still at the time. well, they're still of course being tracked electronically well, now. I, so yes, I, I would need to, but I did hear on a, another <laughs> podcast that apparently there is an app that you can get for your phone to track women oh, who leave the country. And, and women can very easily be imprisoned and then tried with stupid trials and, and executed for all sorts of ridiculous things. So that none of that has really changed dramatically, but it's getting scrutinised a lot more now because they've opened up a little bit in this commercial way. They're going to be forced to be uh, more um, civilised participants in the global community. So... I'm just reminded, and I can't remember what he was talking about, Obama, at the time, but he had a great saying. He had a lot of great sayings, obviously, Huggy. He was a wonderful orator. But the notion of we'll reach out with an open hand, but it can't be met with a closed fist. Or a bone saw. Or a bone <laughs> saw. That's, well, that's right. Or even just a fist detached from the rest of the human body that it was formerly yeah. a part of. There's something in that, isn't there? That, that, that would need, it needs to be a two-way street, I guess, is what we're saying. You can't just have a whole bunch of already wealthy golfers being paid a whole bunch of money, and somehow that makes Saudi Arabia all right. There has to be some sort of two-way street happening there. Yeah, I mean, you could, we're talking about a long-term view for the showing open. It would be a very long-term view for, <laughs> to engage with Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's so ingrained there. I mean, this is... But is it a short-term view not to, Huggy? 
So we're saying, well, okay, so yeah. the easy you thing to do is to argument. keep keep chasing Rory every year for the Australian Open and giving him whatever that price continues to rise to be or the equivalent of Rory each year, uh, and that's a losing race. We know that, but ultimately we're almost there now. We're almost at a point where the Australian Open can't afford uh, you know, to get the one big star. We're lucky we've got Adam Scott. That window will close. He's been very loyal to the tournament, and that's fantastic of him. We can't expect that that's going to keep happening. We know what the eventual outcome you only got to look down the road to see where that's heading. So is the short-term view of any real value, or do you, despite your own misgivings, have to accept that we need to make a longer-term view? And no matter which way you go, there's going to be hard decisions to be made. But at least yeah, try I mean, to get on a path. Know, as far as Saudi Arabia is concerned, I don't think any of us would see significant change in our lifetimes. I think it's, you know, you're talking at least 50 years and maybe more. Mm. You may be talking about, you know, again, I'm thinking out loud, but it could take as long as 100 years to make significant change in in a country like that. It's a lot of it's to do with religion. I mean, it's all... Generational. You need generational change. But they're showing open. I mean, I'm always... And I think I've said this before on here, and I apologise if I have, but I'm always very disappointed in the, the, the top 10 male players in the world. I mean, to me, mm. you know, they, they should be getting together at the start of every year and saying, right, we're all going to go somewhere this year, one week a year. We're going to have one week a year where we're going, to, we're going to go somewhere for nothing and we're going to go somewhere that's going to make a difference. We're not all going to go at the same place. It's going to be 10 different ones and we'll change it every year. And one of them should be the Australian Open. The, one of the top 10 players of the world should be saying that at the start of every year, I'm going to the Australian Open this year. I'll be there. See, you know, I go back to Rory at the South African Open a couple of years ago when he went there as a favour to Ernie, and apparently the place was moving oh, with the kids and spectators. I mean, the, the the impact, as you say, that, that these guys can make, and Rory gets all this. I mean, and how much money do they need? I mean, one and one week a year just to donate, if you like, to to the, the good of the, the, good game. Of the game. Terrible phrase, but. Just do it. You know? Again, Jason Day could come back to Australia just three years in a row, say, and donate his appearance fee back into the prize pot or something. Yes. You know? exactly. And people would talk about it for 20 years. Like, oh, I remember that thing Jason Day did. We talk about Norman, who is yeah. getting appearance money every year to play the Australian Open. Yeah. You can argue the rights and wrongs of that, but nobody holds that against him. They all, We all accept that what he did for the tournament and his profile and its place in world golf was a positive. Mm-hmm. So good on him. He didn't need the money. He could have come for nothing. He, 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 boy, just do the right thing, for goodness sake. Well, once in your pampered lives, my God. Huggy. I get so frustrated with these guys. Huggy, just I am, do it. I am nominating Jason you. Jason Day triggered him. That's right. <laughs> I'm nominating you to be the dinner host each year at that top 10 players in the world meeting. I want all those egos in that room, and I want you to run the meeting. That's how you should open it, yeah, too. I so, guarantee for you. For goodness I sake, your pampered you lifestyles. Uh, Rory that- would do it. I guarantee you, Rory would do it. He gets this stuff. Uh-huh. Yep. And I'm surprised he doesn't just do it by himself. Do we? You know, well, Huggy, I, I take your point, but do we oversimplify the realities of Rory's life and Adam's life and Tiger's life? And Rory himself said just a couple of years ago, "I've seen Tiger Woods's life up close, and I don't want it. I want his record, but I don't mm. want that. What his life is like." So it's maybe more complex than we give it credit for. Where well, the- I'm talking one week a year here, Rod. One week a year. Do you recall? Is that really going to change their lifestyles? Okay. Any, I don't think. Do you recall, Huggy? A couple of years ago, Rory was here playing the Australian Open when it emerged overnight that uh, his phone had been subpoenaed in his case with his management. Do you remember that? Yeah. He pulled out his phone in a press conference when he was asked. But he pulled his phone out of his pocket. It's Royal Sydney or the Australian? I can't remember which one it was. Pulled his phone out of his pocket. 
26 years old he was at the time, I think, opened up the calendar and said, I can tell you what I'm doing every day and at what time from now until March next year. That's his life. Now, built into that, no he, doubt, is Rory time. You've got four hours yeah, on Wednesday fix, afternoon. You can fix that, yeah. Maybe. But what I'm just saying is it's easy from the outside to just say, surely you can just do this, this, or this. It's a cage still. It's a gilded cage, but it is a cage. Tiger Woods, for everything that it is and everything he wants, cannot get up tomorrow morning and put on an Adidas shirt. Yeah. Can't. There, Simple act. Talking about human rights, I mean, there's a, uh, a case to be made that fame is a form of abuse. Oh, gee, that might be a different podcast series. Isn't yeah, it's, golf? It, it, I actually heard that on the, the You're Wrong About podcast, oh, did you? which is they, a very good podcast. That's but, extremely interesting. I'm all in. They talked, about, the it, line. They talked about it with Princess Diana, that you know the, that fame and, and, and that level of, of notoriety is a form of abuse. Like it's, a, it's, a, we, vi- it's a violation of That we can't understand. Yeah, we can't. I mean, the celebrity we generate from doing this podcast doesn't You're pretty close. No, I don't know, Rod. You're pretty, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of Rod Mori fans out there. There really isn't. <laughs> <laughs> it really, really isn't. So, yes, I accept what you say. You know, I agree. I think it would be fantastic. I wonder how you make that happen. I wouldn't give up on the idea. I wonder if you. I don't think it's that hard. I really don't. I mean, yeah. You know, I think McElroy would do it. Players themselves. I think McElroy would do it. I think Spieth would do it. Patrick Reed would have no part of it. Brooks Kepka, I doubt, would be interested. Adam Scott would probably do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, you don't understand that. I mean, Rory's bypassed the Irish Open. Once or twice, yeah, isn't he? Because yeah. of tensions with whoever at whatever time. There's all sorts of things. Thank you. He, he saved the Irish Open. There wouldn't be an Irish Open right now if it wasn't for Rory. True, true. So, yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, I just did do it. Boy, is that a rabbit hole? I didn't expect that we'd go down. Yes. Lots to uh, think about. I wonder if the powers that be at Golf Australia are listening to us. Here's the real question. I've asked you this before, Logue. Well, if they, if they are, Rod, then track man for everybody, remember? That's, you <laughs> That's really, the way to grow the really game. want to grow the game. Give everyone a track man. It, it, should be, it should be a human right, like the internet. That, it should be a Golf Australia app. That you can get access <laughs> to track man lessons. It will make a difference to your game. Huggy, was how many years were you instruction editor of, of uh, Golf World? Uh, and you made- Eight, year, eight, eight years at Golf Digest. And, and, and you, as, as I've, I've told you this before, I know where you're heading with this. Yeah, and you when, didn't When I arrived, the, the average handicap of the average reader was 17.8. And when I left eight years later, it was 17.8. There you go. Do no harm. There you, you go. You've achieved that. If, if Golf Australia <laughs> went on a program of giving like trackman lessons to everybody in the country, the, it would come down. That thing is amazing. Like You you get this instant feedback. That hugging, feel produces that out, result. Trackman in. Yeah. Is that what right. we're saying? That's right. Huggy, you're yeah. gone. You've been bypassed, my friend. You want to grow the game? Yeah, well. Don't write about it. Don't make people emotionally attached to it. Give them a track man so they can look at some data. I know from- And, the- a, and a rangefinder and a greens book and a caddy with a, you know, a yardage book in his pocket. Look, I know from the handicap system that most people get to a certain handicap in within a you know two or three years of taking yeah. up the game, and that's their handicap for life until- their body and mind starts to deteriorate, and then they, and then go, they start to blow to out. Go out. That's right. That's that's your golfing life cycle. You could make a difference to that. How with track track man lessons for everyone? Okay, hang on a minute. So, are you suggesting that the guys who get to one or scratch because naturally they've got yeah you know, they've got natural ability? And people do have natural ability. Some nat- you know, some people are ten markers. Some people always be eighteen markers. You might get the eighteen market at sixteen or fourteen or even twelve or ten. But how's that changed? All you're doing is shifting the handicap. 
it, it will bring brief there. joy to people knowing that they've maximised their limited physical skills. <laughs> <laughs> don't you want to? Don't you want to bring some? You want to? Not convinced. The handicap is meant to be a reflection of your best golf. So I get that. I understand that. Um, so let's just move that needle a little bit for everybody, so that their best golf is a little bit better. Broadly, though, I'm on board with the idea of giving a track man to everybody. So, so the question is, and I've asked you this before. <laughs> Do you have the courage Trackman listen to everyone to implement your Australian Open plan? If I made you the czar of Australian golf tomorrow, do you have the courage to do what we are quite just sitting here and pontificating about? Oh no, no, I'm not the I'm not the one to <laughs> execute it. No. Oh, <laughs> not me, not me. <laughs> I can't I'll throw stones and have the ideas, but no, it's uh, that's for other people who but look, I would I would advocate for it strongly. If, you know, if it was had a seat at the table. Yes, I agreed. I would too. I, I actually I, I think you're right. And it, it, the pandemic is the opportunity for the first time ever. You've got the opportunity to say to Australian golf fans, realistically, look, world situation dictates this is not going to be what we've become used to with the Australian Open. We're not going to have the big name international players. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the Australian Open is not important. It's important to you're not going to have trouble filling the field. Uh, you might the strength of field while the world ranks out, but you're not going to have a less compelling event. That has always been the deal with the Australian yes. Open. Going back to the 70s and 80s, you might have had a world mm. number one would come, yeah. maybe one or two others because they had a deal with Slassinger or well, something Actually, like no, I'm watching Robbie Williamson's um, videos on Twitter. My goodness, the leaderboards there are stacked with some notes. Faldo, Langer. Uh, not, they're not all necessarily Kurt at strange. the same event, though. Um, like the, mm. you, you, you would have two or three internationals. You'd have a few journeyman internationals would come over. You'd have all of the top Australians would come over. That's one of the big differences yes. between then and now. All the top Australians would come over. Your, your Scott Hens, your Marcus Frazers would be there every single year. That's a scheduling problem for most of those guys. That's they wouldn't have a scheduling problem yeah. in the seventies and eighties. They would come over and play, and you'd have so you'd have that. You could do worse. You could do worse than copy certain aspects of what the Masters did Absolutely. back in the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Masters were you know Bobby Jones and Clifford Roberts were smart enough to um, to look after the the British press. Mm. They were very influential at the time. <laughs> Hang on, where are we going with this, Huggy? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, well, I, know, I knew where you were going to laugh at that. But the, you, you could pick out, you know, not not just the British press, obviously, this thing, because the world's changed a bit since the back in the day. But, you know, you pick out four or five of the, the best top golf journalists from around the world and, and get them to the tournament. That always invited that, a Japanese That would have a huge influence on, on people's perspective of it. Eamon Lynch writing about Australian golf would do well. There you go. For yeah, golf he would be a perfect candidate, yeah. And he could stay with Clates, and I could take well, the microphone I'm not, down I'm there. not so sure about that. I, I, I'm the one who stays with Clates, so you have to find somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, Huggy, you're, you're making a rod for your own back here if you're not careful. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah but I think, you know, there, there are aspects of the Masters that are worth looking at. Oh, most you're definitely. talking about a long-term view. Yeah, you know? most definitely. And look, what the Masters has done particularly well is not give in to the temptations that come with all that success, which has turned itself into another one of the majors where the sandwiches cost 42 bucks, it's Mm -hmm. $4,000 for a weekly ticket, all of those things. They haven't fallen for any of that. They're very, they're extraordinarily clever bunch of people. And taking it back to the PGA. You need need a great logo. Get a a great logo. That's what they've got. Oh, 
Well, well no, no, they've actually they've actually got a great brand. That that logo, logo. I think it's pretty dang. Did I tell you this? I, I think to, I might have told you this, Huggy. This is something really interesting. I was for a whole other reason. I was looking at a whole bunch of marketing videos on YouTube. What marketing is about, you know, this and that. Now then, there's a guy called Seth Godin who I'd never heard of, but apparently he's a bit of yeah. a legend, and he has this great. Analogy, which makes so much sense to me. He said, if Nike were going to open a hotel, we all have some idea what that would look like. I know it's too cool for me to go and stay there. You've got a bit of a image in your mind conjured up immediately what a Nike hotel would be. He said, if Hyatt decided they were going to make sneakers, you get no image mm-hmm. because Nike is a brand and Hyatt is a logo. You know what they stand for. And, and that's, yeah. that's really interesting to think about. And the Masters is not a logo. You could change the Masters logo. Yep. Over time. Look but the Masters you. is a brand. It's Wimbledon. Look at you, like a marketing guru. I was really fascinated by that as a, as a concept, and that's what the Australian Open needs to think about. The, moment the Australian Open is a, the Australian Open's a trophy. It's a logo, and they've lost the brand that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, these romantic notions that it was the fifth major, all that nonsense that people have peddled from, <laughs> ridiculous. Nicholas and Palmer and Player came here because of money, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. you know, and that hasn't changed. The amounts have. We could afford it back then. The deals were different. Nicholas would pay for a percentage of sales of clubs that he would use when he came to Australia. Palmer would be, whatever. That hasn't changed. But the brand that that built has gotten lost somewhere in a world that's just getting noisier and noisier. If they can find a brand that can work, the Australian Open, it it won't last forever, but it's got something to hang its hat on is that history of the names on that trophy. And it's a national open that has kept its identity. One of the oldest tournaments in the world. It hasn't been diluted by co-sanctioning, and and that's what happens to every single other national open. The the only thing that the Australian Open has diluted is it's got naming rights sponsors and stuff, but, you know, that's inevitable. It's had that for years. Yeah, you're right about the the dilution, but, I mean, the you know, in the Scottish Open, great title. The great title is just by the, you know, Scottish Open – what a great title that is, but it's not the same if it's the Aberdeen Barclays Asset Scottish Management. Open, you know. Aberdeen Asset yeah, there you Management, go. Yeah. At the moment. Which is one of the original notions of the Premier Golf League, which was intriguing before they sort of split and had this Saudi or whoever knows what's going on there. One of their original notions was to go and uh, take over, for want of a better term, yeah. re-energise these great titles mm. that have lost yeah. traction in a marketplace of just money, that ironic as that might seem. Truly arrogant and offensive, though, that idea Absolutely. of just of, of having a field of 64 for the Australian Open. Of course. Of course. It's really, problematic, I mean, but, but, really. right. but it shows an intent yeah. that at least understands the game. They're onto something. National Opens yes. should be a big as, deal. Uh, there should be a tour of National Opens. Yeah. Uh, that would be, yeah. should listen to yeah. us. I mean, I've, I've always argued that the Scottish Open – has missed a trick. I mean, we, we need a change of ownership at Turnberry, but um, to get it back. But I would, if I was, the, if I owned Turnberry, I'd be sent to the European Tour. I'll have the Scottish Open every year, the week before the Open. I'll forget about having the Open every ten years. Who cares about that? And I'd have the Open, the Scottish Open every year. I'd get a great field because all the Americans would come the week before. They'd all stay in the hotel. The pictures of Turnberry, beautiful scenery, would be beamed around the world. It would be a huge marketing coup for the, the the hotel and the area in Scotland and, and the tournament. And that makes far too much sense for me. But the, that's where the Scottish Open should be every year. It should be at Turnberry the week before the Open every year. Huggy, sometimes I listen to you and I'm staggered that you don't have enough money to own Turnberry. 
I do, because you are an ideas man, my friend, as they say in the castle. Yeah. We've better wrap it up. I'm just yeah, but here. as I say, we, we have to get rid of Mr. Trump. Yeah, well, there, yeah, I'm, everything's for sale, Huggy. Everything's for sale. Yeah. Might be a fire sale there soon. Who knows? Uh, we've taken longer than I thought. Let's quickly touch on Meg McLaren. She finished third. Like She was leading through mm-hmm. – um, 36 holes in a 54-hole tournament. She tweeted that she was gutted, but I think we have to give her a shout-out because she gave the fist pump that she talked about. I reckon that was a signal just personally to us. We asked her to practice her fist pump, and she... She put one, uh, demonstrated one holding that final putt on the third or the sorry, second, second round. round yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought that was especially for us. I she think so she might not yeah, have realised it I, until I, I reminded thought, her. I thought it was her just celebrating Newcastle United's avoiding relegation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, t- t- tough to it be a fan been. of theirs. It was a little bit timid. It wasn't though? the best fist. Oh, but she needs, needs work. If Meg, if you're listening, I, I think, yeah, get like go back to the, the mirror in the, in the hotel room and practice that fist pump. Make it a little bit more, a <laughs> little bit more aggressive. I think friend of the pod, so she gets Let's to see lots out. more of them. Third place finish there on the Symmetra Tour, but what does it maybe suggest about what's coming? Who knows? It's a momentum game and a confidence game. Huggy, it's always fantastic to talk to you. I've just noticed what time it must be in your part of the world, so we'd best let you go. But thank you for joining us today, mate. Really enjoyed it as always. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. I'm not convinced about that. We might talk about that uh, further. No, no, I'm, 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 I, I, I love you guys. You know that. <laughs> You've got a weird Australian thing going, don't you, Huggy? You're almost Australian. I'd be happy to adopt Huggy if you wanted. You and Laura no, Davies, I'd take you both. And Meg. I told you before, I've got, I've got one Australian word, and that's water. It's the only word I can say with even something approximating a, an Australian accent. What was the word? What was the word? Can you spell it? Can you use it in a sentence? In the, in, in the water. In the water. Oh, in the water. Oh, in the water. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, okay. <laughs> I kind of butchered it, but... <laughs> Yeah. Well, I said I said it was an approximation. That's as close as I could get. Fabulous. It's as close as I. It's as close as you guys can get to mine. I was going to say, yeah, you, yeah. I can imagine some of the Scottish nonsense that you must have. Great <laughs> to have you aboard, Logue. Always good to have you along. And uh, you've, uh, I'm fully behind you in this Australian Open campaign. I'm not going to lead the charge, but I'm fully behind you in okay. uh, what you'd like to do. Yep. But thanks for your right. input today. First through the wall comes out bloody. Right, that's. That's me. Yeah, but if you want to make an omelette, you've got to break some eggs, Logue. <laughs> so you know, there's a million cliches that we can use on this journey. So there's a couple of good ones to start. Uh, if you're still with us, congratulations. <laughs> That's it for episode 77 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. But don't panic. There'll be another one next week here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.